Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening. We thank you for the present freedoms that we enjoy and for this time to be able to gather together to study your word. Father, we pray as we continue this study in soteriology, as we look at the role of God the Holy Spirit, that we will be sensitive to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the biblical text. Father, we pray that we will be challenged by the things that we study this evening, that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we are looking at the role of God the Holy Spirit uh, in soteriology as it relates to salvation. And uh, we've been, we a few weeks ago, we jumped into uh, looking at uh, the deity of the Holy Spirit. We looked at the personhood of the Holy Spirit. We talked briefly about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, how he related to saints. We looked at how the Holy Spirit sustained the humanity of Christ during his time of ministry on the earth. And uh, we also spent some time looking at how, last week, at how God the Holy Spirit works through believers and through the church to a fallen world. And then we specifically looked at the role of the Holy Spirit with regard to his convicting ministry, with regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin regarding the particular sin of unbelief righteousness because Jesus is the holy and righteous one and he has gone back to heaven to his home from which he originated and then uh, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged and so tonight we are going to transition into our next section and we're going to look at the role the spirits uh, the role of the spirits ministry concerning regeneration indwelling baptizing and sealing now, previously, we've been looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament uh, and in the New Testament with regard to unbelievers largely, but this has to do with the believer's ministry. Uh, uh, this has to do with the Spirit's ministry to believers at the moment of salvation. Now, at the moment of salvation, God the Holy Spirit performs several acts for new believers. And the four that I've listed here, we will unpack more in the future. But the four that are the most commonly addressed or noteworthy are one, regeneration, two, indwelling, three, baptizing, and four, sealing. Now these all occur instantaneously at the moment of salvation. And a good acronym for this, if you want to remember this easily, is RIBS, R-I-B-S, regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, and sealing. Uh, Easy acronym to remember. Uh, Now let's look at the first one here. Let's look at regeneration. Now the word regeneration itself occurs only twice in the Bible. It occurs once in Matthew 19.28 where Jesus is talking to the apostles and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration. Now the regeneration here, he's referring specifically to the millennium. He's referring to the millennial kingdom. He says, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Now, this speaks of the reign of Christ in Jerusalem, in Israel, uh, on the throne of David, over the whole world, in which he will rule uh, in righteousness uh, over the entire earth. But this is a future event. So he's talking about the regeneration, which the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, And he says, you, here talking to the apostles, shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that's a future event. 
The other passage where the word regeneration occurs is in Titus 3.5, where Paul says that he saved us, and that's always the order. It's always a top-down uh, truth when it comes to our salvation, that he saved us. Not that we participated, not that we saved ourselves, it's he saved us. And Paul is quite clear, as he says here in other places, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now, in both places, the Greek word used is polingonesia, polingonesia. And when you pronounce it, even though there's a double gamma there, anytime you have a double gamma, it produces an NG sound, like just like in the word angelos, you have a double gamma there, but the NG sound is, uh, is how it's pronounced. So in both places, the word used, the Greek word, is polingonesia, uh, which according to Badag, the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, is defined as the state of being renewed, the experience of a complete change of life, rebirth of a redeemed person. And, um, and that's taken from page 752 in Badag. Now, regeneration means new believers receive spiritual life at the moment that they trust in Christ alone as their Savior. Um, now, Norman Geisler says, quote, The new birth of which Jesus speaks is the act of regeneration, whereby God imparts spiritual life to the believer's soul. Uh, Paul ends in his Moody Handbook of Theology, states, succinctly stated, to regenerate means to impart life. Regeneration is the act whereby God imparts life to the one who believes, end quote. And by the way, that's taken from the Moody Handbook of Theology. That's a really good book. If you don't have that, I would recommend that. It's a single volume, but a very good resource to have for your library. And here I'm going to quote from uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie, and this is from his little book called A Survey of Bible Doctrine, A Survey of Bible Doctrine. He has his larger work, which is um, uh, basic theology, but if you want a smaller single volume, his little survey of Bible theology is really, really good. It's another little book that I would recommend. And Dr. Ryrie says, quote, Although the word regeneration is used only twice in the Bible, Titus 3.5, where it refers to the new birth, and Matthew 19.28, where it refers to the millennial kingdom, he says the concept of being born again is found in other passages, notably John 3. Technically, he says, it is God's act of begetting eternal life in the one who believes in Christ. While faith and regeneration are closely associated, the two ideas are distinct. Faith being the human responsibility and the channel through which God's grace is received, and regeneration being God's supernatural act of imparting eternal life, end quote. Now, when we think about uh, being born again, uh, when we think about birth, the Bible uses birth and death in several ways. And maybe you've heard the phrase that if you're born once, you will die twice. If you are born twice, you will die once. Now the idea behind that is, is that if you are born once, that is just biological life, just human life. If you are born just once but not born again, then that means that you will die twice. You will die physically uh, and you will die the second death. 
which is being cast into the lake of fire. That's called the second death in Revelation. But if you are born twice, that is, if you're born physically, and then if you are born again spiritually, then you will only die once, that is, the physical death, uh, and you will not face the second death, which is the lake of fire. Uh, now, the exception to that will would be obviously the rapture generation, because we will not see death. We will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and this uh, perishable will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality uh, when we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. I like a lot of what I see going on in the world, not in the sense that I like the evil that is going on, but it sure seems like there's an awful lot of stage setting going on in the world with Israel being in the land, uh, with the hostility that's coming on, it seems like a lot of the things are pointing very quickly to the rapture of the church. And of course, that's what I'm looking forward to is always the rapture of the church. But it just seems like there's a lot of stage setting going on with uh, Israel being in the land, um, with there a lot of being a lot of discussion about a one world government, a one world economy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on, the discussion of the rebuilding of the temple, in Jerusalem, there's a lot of things that just seem to be uh, a lot of stage setting at this point. And so it has me looking to the sky more often for the Lord's return. Uh, but again, getting back to the notes here on the idea of regeneration, uh, David Anderson, and this is a quote that I pulled out of his book called Free Grace Soteriology. Uh, page 235, he says, The New Testament uses a number of different words and images to convey the doctrine of regeneration. The noun, polygonesia, is used just twice, Matthew 19.28 and Titus 3.5. In Matthew, Jesus is speaking of the regeneration which will occur at his second coming. He refers to setting up his kingdom placing the twelve over the twelve tribes of Israel and rewarding those who have sacrificed for his cause. But, he says, in Titus 3.5, we have a direct reference to the rebirth of the believer. And there he cites Titus 3.5, which says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, end quote. Now, the concept of regeneration, added to the concept of regeneration, uh, we, could, we could add the words anothen and anaganao. Anothen and anaganao. These are the other two words. Now, Jesus, while speaking to Nicodemus, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And uh, the word anothen uh, generally means from a source that is above, from a source that is above, and that's also taken from Badag. Uh, so that is the idea from a heavenly source. And it's commonly translated born again, but even um, the NASB 1995 update has a little marginal note, or from above, because that's what anothen means. Anothen means from above. And so when Jesus is speaking here, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, that is born from the source of heaven, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, at least uh, two translations, one is the Net Bible, one is the Young's Literal Translation, 
And the Young's Literal Translation uh, I use on occasion. It's an extremely, and I mean extremely, wooden translation. But sometimes it pulls out those nuances that you sometimes lose uh, in a translation. So both of those translate, they render the word anothen as from above. Now, I remember getting into a discussion. Let's see, this would have been back in 1999. Uh, I was in my second year of postgraduate studies uh, at Texas Tech University. I was doing some postgraduate studies in classical literature. I was studying uh, classical uh, Greek. That is the Greek that goes from the time of about 850 BC from Homer down to the time of Alexander the Great to about 336 uh, BC. And uh, we were doing some translation work on um, Aristotle and, and uh, Euripides and some of the other Greek uh, um, poets. And anyway, my Greek professor, interestingly enough, uh, caught me one day after class because we were having discussion. And I think somehow there was an allusion made to the Koine Greek, which is the Greek of the New Testament. And anyway, he caught me after class, and he asked me if I was a Christian, and I said yes, and uh, I asked him if he was a Christian, and he said yes, and then, and then he quickly moved into the dis uh, discussion of whether or not I had been water baptized, and, which I thought was kind of odd, but anyway, after some discussion, he finally, uh, it turns out he's Church of Christ, and uh, his father was a Church of Christ minister, his grandfather was a Church of Christ minister, he married a woman whose father was a Church of Christ minister, so he grew up in this um, community. But they adhere to uh, baptismal regeneration. And in the discussion, we started talking about, it. well, he pulls out a few verses out of his pocket, and one of the passages he cited was in John chapter 3. So uh, I agreed to have a discussion with him on the basis that we could really sit down and really get into the text. Well, uh, he came to me with John chapter 3, uh, as one of his proof texts for baptismal regeneration. And baptism really is not found anywhere in the passage. Uh, but we, it, it clearly talks about being born again, so that's, that's definitely tied in there. But as we were looking at it, uh, it reads on in verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Now, Nicodemus uh, picks up on the language of being born again. Now, he's, Nicodemus is a little confused here because he understands birth, but he doesn't quite grasp uh, the new birth. He doesn't quite grasp the idea of being born from above. And so Nicodemus, thinking from human viewpoint, he poses the question, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and can be, and can be born, can he? So he's thinking in terms of biological birth. That's what he's thinking about. He's thinking about that birth that occurs that all humans experience. That uh, that going and, and so he says he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now Jesus said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God." Now this is where my Greek professor, my classical Greek professor, got hung up because he saw the word water there, and he assumes baptism. Now, I challenged him on this because, I, first of all, I challenged him that baptism by itself is not always a wet word. Sometimes baptisms are dry. Uh, the baptism of Moses was dry. The baptism of the cross was dry. Um, in Matthew 3.11, uh, Matthew mentions three baptisms. John the Baptist, talking to Jesus, said, I baptize you with water for, repent for repentance, but one who is coming after me, uh, is greater than I, and he will baptize you 
uh, uh, in the Spirit and with fire. Well, being baptized in the Spirit and with fire, that's clearly a dry baptism. You can't get any drier than fire, obviously. Uh, but uh, there, are, there are at least seven and perhaps eight baptisms that are mentioned in the New Testament. And some are wet and some are dry, but he had never considered these. Uh, his baptism that he was familiar with was strictly a water baptism. And really, anytime you're looking at a text, the text itself doesn't really specify uh, what kind of baptism it is. You have to always put it back in the context. And it doesn't always specify whether it's wet or dry. Its context determines the meaning. And so the word baptism by itself is not necessarily a wet word. That's ultimately what I'm trying to get at here. It's not necessarily a wet word. Uh, John says, I baptize you in water. Well, the prepositional phrase there, in water, tells you that it's a wet baptism. But clearly when Jesus says I will, you know, that he will baptize you in the Spirit and with fire... Uh, clearly that is a dry baptism. But my Greek professor saw the word water here and just naturally assumed baptism. And I just told him, I said, there's no way. I said, Jesus is, I said, baptism is not within a thousand miles of this verse. He's not talking about baptism at all. He's talking about physical birth and spiritual birth. And what Jesus is doing is he's getting uh, super simple with Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water... That is biological life and the spirit, that spiritual life, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, you have to be born as a human and you have to be born again. Now notice Jesus clarifies this in verse 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's human life. That's born of the water. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And uh, anyway, that discussion we had one day at a Denny's restaurant wound up going for about six months. I think we had looked at like about 115 different passages in the New Testament where uh, every occurrence of baptizo, bapto, baptismos, baptistes, we looked at every form of uh, the root, uh, bapto, and uh, by the time we were done, he still wasn't convinced, even though I thought we had pretty much closed the door on baptismal regeneration, but that's what he thought. But nonetheless, when you're looking at John 3, 5, and 6, it's talking about physical birth and spiritual birth. So when he says, unless one is born of the water, that's human life, biological life, and the spirit, that's born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And again, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then verse 7, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So here Jesus uses the Greek uh, word anothen uh, to communicate this idea of being born from above. Now because, again, let me get back to the notes here. Because Nicodemus confused physical birth with spiritual birth, Jesus clarified his statement saying that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And Jesus was talking about spiritual birth or regeneration, which comes from the source of heaven. Now, Peter in 1 Peter 1.3 uses the Greek word anaganao, anaganao, which when he wrote about Christians, whom he says have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse 123, where he says, and who have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. 
And so the basic meaning of anaganao uh, means to begat again or cause to be born again. So in both instances, the word denotes imparting new life. It denotes imparting new life. Now, this work of the Spirit is directly related to the believer's salvation because we're looking at the subject of soteriology. We're, look at, we're looking at what God the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer, of the one who has faith in Christ. And at the moment of faith in Christ, this is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does at the moment of salvation. Now, according to John Wolvard, and this is taken from his book, The Holy Spirit, page 131, he says, The work of regeneration can be assigned to the Holy Spirit as definitely as the work of salvation can be assigned to Christ. End quote. And the believer's new life is the basis for a new walk with the Lord. It's the basis for the new walk because you cannot live the spiritual life if you don't have spiritual life. You have to have spiritual life to have this new walk. So the believer's new life is the basis for a new walk with the Lord. Charles Ryrie, from his survey of Bible doctrine again, states, Regeneration does not make a man perfect, but it places him in the family of God and gives him the new ability to please his Father by growing into the image of Christ. Fruit from the, from the new nature is proof that regeneration has occurred, end quote. And Dr. Robert Leitner, from his um, Handbook of Evangelical Theology, says the means by which regeneration is accomplished eliminates all human endeavor. Though personal faith in Christ as, as, though, though personal faith in Christ as necessary as Savior is necessary, Faith does not produce the new life. It does not regenerate. Only God regenerates, he says. Human faith and divine regeneration occur at the same time, but the one is man's responsibility, and he is enabled by the Holy Spirit, and the other is the work of God imparting the divine life, end quote. And, uh, and so regeneration is the first of four major things that happen. Now, there's other things that happen, and we're going to look... Here in a few weeks, we're going to go through and we're going to look at a number of things that happen at the moment of salvation. I'm just hitting some of the high points here, uh, but we're going to get into the weeds on this a little bit later uh, here in a few weeks. Uh, so we're just looking at regeneration as the starting point for the believer's new walk with the Lord. The believer now has new life, spiritual life, and a capacity for living the Christian life, for advancing to maturity. Now, next is going to be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the regeneration, indwelling, uh, baptizing work of the Spirit, and uh, sealing, all four of these things happen, again, remember, at the moment of salvation, at the moment of faith in Christ. Now, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, for every believer was an innovation that was future from the time of Jesus' ministry on earth. Uh, Jesus said in John 7, 39, He who believes in me... As the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John tells us, uh, but this he spoke from the Spirit, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive, uh, for the Spirit was not yet glorified. 
and apparently I've got a miscitation there in that first reference, but I will correct that in the next set of notes. I'll get that updated and sent out. But notice John 7:39. It says, "But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive." Notice that, that it's anticipating a future event. Notice he says, "For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified." So again, the Spirit was not yet given, and we talked about this last time because we talked about how the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is particular, especially the ministry as it relates to the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, was future from the time uh, of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And after Jesus ascended to heaven, then the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost to begin this new ministry. Well, that was by and large to unbelievers, but this is talking about the ministry that would take place for believers. So again, this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now the Spirit would begin his ministry on the day of Pentecost, and it would involve his personal indwelling of every believer. And prior to his crucifixion, Jesus spoke of this, saying, and here we have the reference to um, John 14, 16, and 17, saying, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you. And then that last prepositional phrase, and will be in you. So this was an innovation. This is uh, something that was prophesied. So this is something that is unique to the dispensation of the church age. It is something that is unique to our time. Remember, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon a select few. Prophets, priests, artisans, kings. It would come upon a select few persons in order for them to fulfill a divinely appointed function. But here, uh, this anticipates the coming of the Holy Spirit. Again, that special ministry that began in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Uh, in which Jesus says that he will be, that, and he says, but you know him because he abides with you, and beginning in Acts 2, and will be in you. And again, that prepositional phrase is important. Uh, now, Merrill Tenney, from his uh, commentary on John, and it's taken from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. I've got the large set behind me on my bookshelf here. Uh, Merrill Tinney states, he says, This distinction marks the difference between the Old Testament experience of the Holy Spirit and the post-Pentecostal experience of the church. The individual indwelling of the Spirit is the specific privilege of the Christian believer. End quote. Now, this new ministry, this new indwelling ministry by God the Holy Spirit, is different than his work uh, in believers in the Old Testament. And remember, we looked at a number of passages here a few weeks ago in which we looked at under the Mosaic Law how only a select few persons received the Holy Spirit. We talked about how um, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, how God said, I have filled him with spirit and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship. And so the Spirit came upon him uh, to endow him with this uh, ability, with this wisdom and skill to be able to make these articles that were going to be used in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Uh, We saw how the Spirit came mightily upon David 
And we also talked briefly about how the Spirit departed from Saul. Uh, and so, again, under the Mosaic Law, only a select few received the Holy Spirit, and that was conditioned on his sovereign purposes. But now, in the dispensation of the church age, God the Holy Spirit would personally indwell both the local church as well as each individual believer. Paul wrote to Christians living in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you, that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Again, that prepositional phrase being, under, being important. Now, concerning the Spirit's indwelling in the church, Earl Rodmacher, and Earl Rodmacher is a very, very good Bible teacher. There's the Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Commentary. That's a, a pretty good source. Uh, I do recommend that. And uh, citing Rodmacher here, he says, There are two words translated temple in the New Testament. One refers to the temple building and all its courts, and the other refers strictly to the most holy place where no one but the high priest could go. And uh, Paul uses the latter term to describe the local church in whom God dwells. Rodmacher notes here, he says, Unlike 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 6.19, where the word temple refers to the individual believer, and Ephesians 2.21, where the word speaks of the church universal, he says these verses of the local church as God's temple, uh, where these words speak of the church universal, universal these verses speak of the local church as God's temple. But then he closes out. He says, God takes very seriously our actions in the church. Destroy any person who disrupts and destroys the church by divisions, malice, and other harmful hacks invites God's discipline, end quote. And so what he's getting at here is that because God the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we not only have to be mindful about our own bodies as temples, but how we treat other uh, believers as well. Because an attack upon a believer is an attack upon the Lord himself. And there's two passages, most notably, that I think of when I, when I think of this. One is in Acts chapter 9, uh, where Paul, at that time Saul, was on his way to Damascus, and he was persecuting the church. He was persecuting Christians. And he was on his way to Damascus to, uh, to attack Christians that were living there. And, of course, the Lord Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and Paul was uh, hit with a blinding light, and he was knocked off his horse. And then a voice spoke to him and uh, said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I think that probably surprised Saul at that time because he didn't see himself as attacking the Lord Jesus. And, of course, he posed the question. He said, you know, who are you, Lord? And he said, Jesus, whom, whom you are persecuting. But Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? That's not what he said. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because an attack upon a Christian is an attack upon the Lord Jesus himself. Now, another example of this is in Matthew 25, where Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats. And he looks at the behavior of both, and he says, um, uh, he says, for example, uh, you visited me in prison, you gave me water to drink, clothes to wear, uh, food to eat. And then the question comes back, Lord, when did we see you naked or hungry or thirsty? When did we see you in these, in, in these uh, conditions? And Jesus said, to the degree that you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Because how we treat other believers is how we treat 
the Lord himself. And so realizing that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit uh, is another key factor uh, with regard to just how important we should regard not only our temple, but regard other believers. Now going on in the notes here, Paul also describes the spirits indwelling each Christian in 1 Corinthians 6.19, where he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Now, Thomas Constable, and he's got some pretty good notes. In fact, his notes are free online. If you ever uh, Google his notes, uh, they're pretty good as well. Uh, he says, quote, Previously, Paul taught his readers that the Corinthian church was a temple, and the word temple translates the Greek word naos. Uh, but previously, Paul taught his readers that the Corinthian church was a temple. Uh, Constable continues to say, the believer's body is also a temple. The Holy Spirit is actually indwelling each of these temples, end quote. So what we find in the church age is that all three persons of the Godhead actually indwell each believer. Uh, notice in John 14, 16, and 17, uh, it reads, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you. That is the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now that's what we're focusing on is the Spirit here. But if you look at John 14, 20, uh, Jesus said, In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. I in you. And then also in verse 23, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we, Jesus and the Father, will come to him and make our abode with him. So, biblically, uh, in John 14, it's pretty pretty straightforward uh, uh, understanding that all three persons of the Godhead indwell every believer. However, the Holy Spirit is the one who has a special ministry, again, which began on the day of Pentecost, and this will continue until the church is raptured. Uh, so the special ministry of the Spirit that, that began on the day of Pentecost is currently uh, in function right now, and that ministry will continue until the rapture of the church, at which time that particular ministry of the Spirit uh, will come to an end. Now, Lewis Berry Chafer, and here I'm citing uh, from his book, He That is Spiritual, He That is Spiritual. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer states, quote, The Spirit made his advent into the world here to abide throughout this dispensation. As Christ is now located at the right hand of the Father, though omnipresent, so the Spirit, though omnipresent, is now locally abiding in the world in a temple or inhabitation of living stones. The individual believer is also spoken of as a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will not leave the world or even one stone of that building until the age-long purpose of forming that temple is finished. Chafer continues on. He says, The Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and that aspect of the meaning of Pentecost will no more be repeated than the incarnation of Christ. There is no occasion to call the Spirit to come, for he is here, end quote. And uh, anyway, I like that quote. And by the way, Chafers, I've read all of his books, and uh, I think there's one that I haven't. 
but his his books are really really good material as well. Uh, so as I reference these uh, these sources, uh, I would recommend that if you can get them for your library, uh, you would benefit from them greatly. But his little book, He That Is Spiritual, it's not a it's not a very long book. It's not a lengthy book by any means, but it's very packed. It's got some really really good doctrine in there. All right, so we've talked about. Um, regeneration and we've talked about the indwelling so let's talk about the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit now the subject of baptism has and continues to be a subject of confusion <laughs> I reference back to my uh, classical Greek professor and uh, again we went for about six months we met every Saturday at a Denny's restaurant for about a, between one and two hours and we were chasing down all these scripture references and you know because I just thought okay if we're gonna open this door let's let's really open it let's let's really look at it and he was a hard nut to crack I, I must confess and in the end even though he agreed that uh, that much of what I set forth looking at the scripture made a compelling case uh, I just he just he just refused to uh, back off of his uh, position on baptismal regeneration it was one of those examples where he had his theology in place, and his theo through his theology, he was, he was interpreting the scriptures through his theological grid. And that's called eisegesis, eisegesis, where one reads one's theology into the biblical text. And uh, anyway, my lengthy discussions with him were an example of that. So again, the subject of baptism has been and continues to be a subject of confusion. The word baptism, the word baptize, is a transliteration of the Greek verb baptizo. The New Testament translators really didn't help us when they transliterated the word. They really didn't help us. And the word broadly means to plunge, to dip, or to wash. And, um, and that's taken again from Badag. So it basically means to plunge, dip, or wash. You can think of when Jesus was in the upper room and he took the bread and he dipped it into the cup, bapto. He immersed it into the liquid. And so it means to plunge, to dip, or to wash is the basic meaning of baptizo. And it is often used of the Christian sacrament of initiation after Jesus' death. We think of water baptism. The Greek noun, baptisma, uh, where we get the word baptism, baptisma, and you can see how this just transliterates right into the English. Uh, the Greek noun baptisma refers to the result of dipping or immersing. And in classical Greek literature, uh, the word was used among the Greeks to signify the dyeing of a garment or the drawing of water by dipping a vessel into another. In fact, in, Spartan, in Sparta, uh, the, the, the Spartans, the Greeks... Uh, used to, when they were preparing for war, would take their spear and would dip it into a bucket of pig's blood. And when they dipped the tip of the spear into the bucket of pig's blood, they were, in effect, preparing their spears for battle. They were making them battle ready or identifying them with war. And that's the basic meaning of, of baptizo, is to identify one thing with another. Uh, going on here, the Greek poet Nicander, circa 200 BC, used both bapto and baptizo uh, when describing the process of making pickles. Uh, so you can see how this was used in just everyday language. Now, according to James Strong, and this is from uh, Strong's Lexicon, he says, when used in the New Testament, this word more often refers to our union and identification with Christ than to our water baptism. Now, the word, I think that is 
probably one of the best definitions I've seen set forth. So again, he says, when used in the New Testament, this word more often refers to our union and identification, because identification is really the, the, the significant meaning of the word when we think about uh, its Christian usage. So it refers to our identification with Christ uh, more so than to our water baptism, he says. Now, there are numerous baptisms mentioned in the Bible. Some are wet, some are dry. John the, ba- John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, clearly making water the bap- uh, clearly making the baptism wet. Uh, but then John the Baptist spoke of Jesus saying, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. These latter two baptisms are both dry, where no one gets placed into water. A few other baptisms mentioned in Scripture include the baptism of the cross, Mark 10, 35-38, the baptism of Moses, Mark 10, 1, or 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2, water baptism, that is the baptism of Christians, where we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We go down with him in death and burial. We come up in resurrection and newness of life. So for the Christian, water baptism is a picture of the believer's spiritual union and identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Water baptism does not save. It never has and never will. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17, this was one of my key passages that I kept bringing up with my classical Greek professor, where Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. My comment to my professor was, the gospel saves. If the gospel includes water baptism, then Paul would not have drawn a distinction here. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, that is water baptize, but to preach the gospel. You see, if baptism were an essential part of the gospel that saves, then Paul would not have drawn this distinction. But it is the gospel that saves, not water baptism. So again, water baptism does not save. It never has and never will. God saves at the moment believers place their faith solely in Jesus. At the moment of faith in Christ, God the Holy Spirit unites new believers spiritually to Christ, adding them to the church, the body of Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For by the Spirit, for by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, one thing I will point out is that if you look back here at Matthew 3.11, it talks about Jesus. It says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So apparently the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit is a collaboration between God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Because here it says that He will baptize you. That is, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And yet in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, uh, it's pointed out that by one Spirit, that is, by God the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer states, quote, As a ground upon which the certainty of eternal security rests, The baptism of the Spirit should be recognized as that operation by which the individual believer is brought into organic union with Christ. By the Spirit's regeneration, Christ is resident in the believer, 
And by the Spirit's baptism, the believer is thus in Christ, end quote. Merrill F. Unger, and here I have a lengthy quote here, but that's all right. And this is taken from his Unger's Bible Dictionary, which is another good source I do recommend. Unger states, he says, This momentous spiritual operation is set forth in the New Testament as the basis of all the believer's positions and possessions in Christ. And let me pause for a moment, because that prepositional phrase, in Christo, Paul uses many times. And it is so theologically significant that we are said to be in Christ, and of course Christ is in us, but we are said to be in Christ, and that prepositional phrase is very, very theologically rich. So getting back to Unger here, he says, The operation is prophetic in the Gospels, that is the operation of the baptism of the Spirit. He says, where Christ is the baptizer, and you could think of that in Matthew 3.11. Unger goes on, he says, it is historic in Acts. So it's prophetic in the Gospels, it's historic in the book of Acts, and doctrinal in the epistles where the Spirit is specifically named as the agent. The Spirit's baptizing work, placing the believer in Christ, occurred initially at Pentecost, at the advent of the Spirit, who was baptizing Jews into Christ. In Acts 8, Samaritans were baptized in this way for the first time. In Acts 10, Gentiles likewise were so baptized, at which point the normal agency of the Spirit as the baptizer was attained. Unger closes out, he says, according to the clear teaching of the epistles, every believer is baptized by the Spirit into Christ the moment he is regenerated. He is also simultaneously indwelt by the Spirit and sealed eternally with the privilege of being filled with the Spirit as the conditions for fulfilling are met. End quote. But again, his point here, I'm going to highlight this, his point here is that according to the clear teaching of the epistles, every believer is baptized by the Spirit into Christ at the moment he is regenerated. This is the work of the Spirit, where the Spirit takes us from being in Adam... And he places us in Christ, in Christo. We are brought to be part of the body of Christ. But this spiritual transference is the baptizing work of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit of identifying us in Christ or with Christ. And so again, this is a a work of the Spirit that is pointed out that occurs at the moment of salvation. Now the fourth one here is the sealing ministry of the Spirit. So we've looked at regeneration. We've looked at indwelling. We've looked at the baptizing work of the Spirit. Now let's talk about the sealing ministry of the Spirit. Now several times Paul uses the Greek verb sragizo. That's a tough word to pronounce. Sragizo. Uh, And he used this verb when writing to Christians. And Paul wrote of God, 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 1.22, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Uh, to the Christians at Ephesus, he wrote in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the spirit of promise. Again, you were sealed in him with the spirit of promise. Now the spirit himself is the seal. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In each of these uses, the verb sfragizo, 
means, and here I'm going to be citing again from Badag, means to mark with a seal as a means of identification, so that the mark denoting ownership also carries with it the protection of the owner, end quote. And that last part is very interesting because the mark denoting ownership, which is what the seal is because we are owned by God, we are purchased uh, by the blood of Christ, so that the mark denoting ownership also carries with it the protection of the owner. Now, uh, Laney Jr., and uh, here I'm uh, citing from uh, the book Understanding Christian Theology, uh, which is another good book, it's a single volume set, but Laney Jr. states, quote, In ancient times, a seal was used as an identifying mark, indicating the rightful ownership of the object sealed. And so the sealing ministry of the Spirit marks believers as God's own possession, guaranteeing their security for eternity, end quote. And concerning Paul's use of sragizo in Ephesians 1.13, and here I have a quote from Harold Honer. Now, Harold Honer has written a number of books, and there's a book uh, that I read a few years back on his called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And it's somewhat of an academic read. It's not hard, though, really, and I would recommend that. That's also a very good book. I was recently um, uh, doing some refreshing reading with that. But Harold Honer did a wrote a commentary on Ephesians, an exegetical commentary, and it's a, it's a hefty commentary. But it is, in my opinion, the finest commentary on Ephesians I've, I've ever encountered. And, of course, Harold Honer is a phenomenal Greek scholar, and he really gets into the, into the languages in a, in, a, in a very, very good way. But here I'm quoting Honer from his commentary. He says, quote, God seals the believers in Christ with the promised Holy Spirit when they have not only heard but also believed the gospel of salvation. The sealing with the Spirit must not be confused with the other ministries of the Spirit. Honer says, The indwelling of the Spirit refers to his residence in every believer. The baptizing ministry of the Spirit places believers into the body of Christ. The filling by the Spirit is the control of the Spirit over believers' lives. The sealing ministry of the Spirit is to identify believers as God's own and thus given them and thus give them the security that they belong to him. The very fact that the Spirit indwells believers is a seal of God's ownership of them. End quote. And the two words that he focuses on here, which I think the others have captured as well, is the idea of security. That because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit is himself the seal, it means that we are secure until the day of redemption, until we leave this world. So not only does it guarantee the believer's security as being secure in our relationship with Christ, but it also demonstrates God's ownership, that we belong to the Lord, that we are His children. And so that's very important theologically to understand. So the Holy Spirit is Himself the seal that marks us as owned by God, and it guarantees our future redemption and glory. Again, Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now listen, you can grieve the Spirit, but you cannot grieve Him away. You can quench the Spirit, but you cannot quench Him away. Uh, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, 
We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, these blessings, these four that I've mentioned here, and we'll unpack more in, in, in a few weeks from now, but these blessings are completely the work of the Holy Spirit for the benefit of Christians and occur at the moment believers trust Jesus as their Savior. You see, these are four works. These are four ministries. That's why this is under the role of God the Holy Spirit in soteriology. This is, this is the work of the, the Holy Spirit as it relates to salvation. Uh, so again, these blessings are completely the work of the Holy Spirit for the benefit of Christians and occur at the moment believers trust Jesus as their Savior. And these are facts based on objective statements in Scripture and are accepted by faith, not ever-changing subjective feelings. You see, the believer is told to live by faith. In fact, Hebrews 10.38, God says, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And Hebrews 11:6 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And when we live by faith, we know that Romans 10:17 tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we first take in the word of God, and once we take it in, once we assimilate it, then we begin to live it out by faith. And so these things that I'm talking about here, these truths of Scripture, are set forth in the Word of God as objective truths. They are facts to be accepted. They are not feelings. They are not tied to our emotions. Now, there are times where, as a Christian, I have wonderful, wonderful Christian experiences, and I like my emotions very much, but I'm not told to live by my feelings. I'm told to live by faith. And so these are things that are accepted in the Christian because the Word of God reveals them as truths, truths that belong to the born-again believer. So again, though Christians can grieve in or quench the Holy Spirit with personal sin, and though we may suffer divine discipline because of personal sin, because he whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, we cannot grieve the Spirit away. Joseph Dillo, and here I have a quote from him, and this is a lengthy quote, but it'll close this out. And this is taken from his book called Final Destiny, The Future Reign of the Servant Kings. And uh, there's a lot about Dillo that I like. Of course, anytime I cite somebody, it uh, should not be taken as a blanket endorsement of all that they teach. Uh, just simply that section that I'm pulling out that I find myself uh, in agreement with that I think cites the matter really well. But Joseph Dillo states, quote, The ancient practice of using seals is behind the figure, figurative use of the word here. A seal was a mark of protection and ownership. The Greek word sphragizo is used of a stone being fastened with a seal to prevent it being moved from a position, and there he cites Bedag. In fact, he goes on, this was apparently the earliest method of distinguishing one's property. The seal was engraved with a design or mark distinctive to the owner. The seal of ownership or protection was often made in soft wax with a signet ring. Um... When the Holy Spirit seals us, he presses the signet ring of our Heavenly Father on our hearts of wax and leaves the mark of ownership. We belong to him. I'm going to highlight that. Uh, Dillo goes on. He says, he certifies this by his unchangeable purpose to protect and own us to the day of redemption. And notice there's the word protect again. It has to do with security. I'm just pulling these out because this is common when, you, when you're reading through these things. So again, citing Dillo here, he says, We belong to him. He certifies this by his unchangeable purpose to protect and, and, own, us as, uh, and own us to the day of redemption. 
he says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 that we are told that the Holy Spirit himself is the seal. He is impressed upon us, so to speak. His presence in our lives is thus a guarantee of God's protection and that we are owned by God. A broken seal was an indication that the person had not been protected. He says the Holy Spirit cannot be broken. He is the seal of ownership. In Ephesians 4.30, we are told that we are sealed unto the day of redemption. The sealing ministry of the Spirit is forever and guarantees that we will arrive safely for the redemption of our bodies and entrance into heaven. He is the seal that we are now owned and protected by God until the day of redemption. End quote. And again, you find that consistent use of the language because that's what is being communicated, that we are both owned and protected by God until the day of redemption. All right, so that is going to close out uh, these four points, the regeneration, the indwelling, the sealing, and the baptizing ministry of God the Holy Spirit that occurs in the life of the believer at the moment of salvation. Now, as I said before, in a couple weeks, we're going to get into a little more detail, and we're going to look at some of the other things that God the Holy Spirit does, some of the blessings that we enjoy at the moment of salvation. But these are the four big ones that are commonly uh, used uh, in systematic theologies. All right, everybody, well, let's go ahead and wrap it up with a word of prayer. And then uh, next week, we will jump into some matters uh, looking at the cross and the crucifixion. Uh, we'll get into some other uh, matters pertaining to the death of Christ, who crucified Jesus. Uh, we will look at the cross and the crucifixion itself. Uh, we're going to hit some pretty interesting stuff here in the weeks ahead, just to kind of give you a preview of coming attractions. So uh, let me go ahead and finish it up with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, close it out. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can call you Father, and we know that we call you Father for one reason and one reason only, and that is because we have believed in Jesus as our Savior. We know that nearly 2,000 years ago, God the Son came into the world and took upon himself humanity, and he came into this world and he lived an absolutely righteous life, and he committed no sin, and he willingly went to the cross and he laid down his life. And he died a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life that we could never earn. And when Jesus hung upon the cross, we know that there was a time when the sky grew dark and all of our sins were placed upon him. And he was judged in our place, Peter tells us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And then after his death, he was placed in a grave. And on the third day, he rose again, never, he rose again to life and never to die again. And we are told that when we come with the empty hands of faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone, that that is the moment in which we receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and many, many other blessings. And Father, we are thankful that we can call you Father because we have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, believing that he died for us, was buried, and rose again, and was seen by many. And Father, we pray this evening as we close out this session uh, that this will be a time of fruitful understanding in which we will be able to take the things that we've learned and be able to apply it to our lives and grow thereby. Father, we thank you. Until we gather together again, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.